Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking again with our frequent guest, Philip Elliott, Washington correspondent for Time. Before joining Time in early 2015, he spent almost a decade at the Associated Press, where he covered politics, campaign finance, education, and the White House. We talk about developments in Washington and in politics surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Phil, it seems from sitting here in the Midwest that on a daily basis, we're seeing a conflict between science, medicine, and ideology. Is, is that a correct assessment? It is, it is one diagnosis of the illness here um, playing out in Washington, but there's also another component here where there's just fear, and fear is an incredibly potent ingredient in policymaking here in Washington that we just don't know how this plays out, um, that there is such um, a, a, a fierce urgency to do something, but there's also a deep uncertainty about what that is, what will help, what it may have consequences uh, going forward, that I, I, I'm having conversations with very um, people who, um, ha- just by virtue of the office they hold, have tremendous power, but they have never felt so powerless in their careers. Um, I mean, the fact that we were having, just last week, we had the first time, I I, I I basically Skyped a question to Speaker Nancy Pelosi in the Rayburn room because we were not able to do, everyone wasn't able to get in for their normal press conference with the Speaker. So I, I sat here in my kitchen and spoke into my computer's camera and asked the Speaker of the House a question about the Postal Service. I mean, we're just really in uncertain times here. And we're all trying to make it work, and we're all trying to make sense of what's happening, but we just don't know. Um, there, there, this, is, this is a book that doesn't have a final page yet, that we don't know how long this, this novel is going to go. And we're all trying to navigate that and figure it out in real time. And yes, we know what some of the science tells us, but we don't know. Um, we, we know the problem. We don't know the solution. Um, we, we have a lot of ideology, but a lot of it's conflicting. Uh, the same people who were complaining about the 2009 stimulus bill under Obama are now spending trillions of dollars of their own stimulus spending. Uh, we, we just, there, there's, there is so much inherent contradiction here and more than ideology or science or just best practices is fear. And that really has permeated so much of what we're doing here in Washington. Well, let me build on that, and let me ask you, we've had a couple of cases now of positive readings within the White House staffs, uh, one the valet to the president, one the press secretary to the vice president. Uh, That has to add to the fear, at least in the executive branch. Yeah, and to be clear, the legislative and the, the judicial branches are not exempt from this either. Um, I've been spending a lot of time working um, sources in um, in Congress, and you you got folks coming in every day, um, hoping that a face mask saves them. 
I mean, just last night we had um, the Senate, the chairman of the Senate Help, uh, Health, Education, Labor, and Pension. Uh, the Health Committee was supposed to be having hearings uh, this week about this. The chairman of that panel, Senator Lamar Alexander, um, one of his staffers has tested positive. So, I mean, he is going to chair a committee hearing um, remotely um, with two of the four witnesses, including Dr. Fauci, testifying by from remote. I mean, this is just, un, I mean, we're, we're, we're really testing the um, ability and continuity of our government. I mean, Senator Alexander is 79 years old um, and will be chairing a committee hearing about preparedness for our schools with half of his witness panel from afar, him from afar, members of his committee from afar, um, trying to figure out how to deal with billions of dollars um, in relief to teachers. That it's just, it's just remarkable how quickly and how rapidly and we're, we're, we're really building this thing on the fly, trying to keep uh, the American people's confidence that Washington can work when in fact there are very real and there are legitimate questions whether this system was built for this moment. Well, let's let's build on that if if we could and talk about optics. We have White House. Uh, we have the president not not wearing a mask. Pence not wearing a mask. Pence uh, not self-quarantining, even though he's had uh, close contact with somebody who's been positive. All of these things seem to be against the CDC guidelines and just normal medical practice. We have Dr. Redfield and Dr. Fauci as self-quarantining from the same kind of contact and perhaps even less contact. Talk about the optics of all of this. How can you say social distance and wear masks and do all of these things if you don't do it yourself and you're the leader of the free world? Yeah, there are a couple, there are two audiences the president is playing for here. There's the immediate audience, the folks who are watching Fox News or OAN or on the other side, MSNBC and um, the liberal outlets. So there's the immediate focus of today. And then there's the larger historical focus. And I'm giving the president a little benefit of the doubt here that there is the audience of today where, okay, you're not modeling best practices, but then there's the audience of the future where it's, oh my God, the president of the United States was reduced to wearing a piece of cloth over his face. And that there are just two different purposes here. And the president if you believe his defenders is making a play for the whole of history and not the audience of today that he does not want in his mind to be the one president who had to put a piece of cloth over his face and reduce the US economy there's the other psychological component of this that the american people have never seen their president having to shield himself or herself with a piece of cloth and some rubber bands around the ears. And that that is just a triggering moment in the president's mind to the American people and an economy that really, um, really will decide whether the president wins a second term in the fall. Let me follow up on that. Uh, it, it, because it, we're talking about reopening the economy. Several states have, have reopened. Ohio is in the process of reopening several other states uh, as well. But the idea that we hear from our governor is that you have to run these parallel tracks. You have to do it safely and keep up the social distancing, keep up the wearing of the mask at the same time we open the, the economy. It sounds like the White House is giving just the opposite view of that. Yeah, that's not an incorrect or um, outlandish reading of the situation, that the president really is recommending one thing on paper and, and modeling another in practice. I mean, you go into any of these, I mean, the White House, the West, the press filing center um, in the West Wing is by definition impossible 
to have social distancing. You got way, you have way too many reporters in there to begin with on during normal times. They have scaled it back and have implemented a pool system. Um, but you, I mean, you just watch the briefings. There is not a six foot distance between these people, no matter how many empty seats you have. Um, you, you look at the experts up on the little, you know, the, the, the one step up um, platform. Um, they're, they're not keeping a social distance from each other. Their aides have um, tested positive. Um, they're, they're, there's just this, there's almost an inevitability that someone up there is going to wind up testing positive. We've seen it in the, um, we've seen it in Congress that there have been members who have tested positive, members who have, staffers who have tested positive. Um, there's, ju there's just this, in an ideal world, everyone would just lock themselves in their homes and do this all by Zoom. But that is not what's <laughs> happening. We were all doing our best here in Washington, but I was, I, I went for a walk um, last week um, to one of my favorite parks um, up just north of U Street. And there were people there who were not practicing social distances. I walked over to the grocery store to pick some stuff up. And to their credit, they do have six foot markers between where you're allowed to stand. But I walked through a park where people had strung up hammocks and were having picnics. So, I mean, it's, it's not just our elected leaders who are failing us. It's just, it's our rank and file neighbors who are failing us too. Okay. So we've had this back and forth between the president and the um, uh, governors who has power to do what uh, right now we're in a place where the president basically said, governors, it's up to you to, reopen uh, as best you can, when you can, um, and and um, probably it would be better to open from the president's view now uh, than tomorrow. Uh, but at the same time, the governors pretty much, not all, but pretty much are taking, well, let's be cautious. Let's look at the data. Let's let's do this slowly. Let's do this on a rollout basis. At what point, or are, are we at that point, when the president loses patience with the governors? I think that's a really fair question, because the president has a clear idea of what he wants to see happen and a clear um, interest in getting his outcome by a date certain. Keep in mind, we start voting here in well under 100 days, and the president's re-election is going to hinge in large part on the health of our health and the health of our economy. And it's really tough to see. He has a very difficult path to re-election if the country remains on lockdown. It is in his interest to get this up and running, whether it deserves to be or not. The governors, however, um, by just by virtue of the calendar, a lot of them won't, many of them will not face judgment from voters this year. For instance, uh, Governor DeWine is not on the ballot this year. He just won re-election in 18. Um, in a year where Democrats pretty much cleaned clock at the congressional level, he managed to hold on because people knew, knew him. They knew what he, what kind of leadership he brought, and he has... Uh, to varying degrees of consistency, demonstrated that through this crisis, um, the president the president needs these governors to open the economy, or at least to telegraph that the economy is open. Um, if he if he stands a chance for reelect, I mean there there is a really there is a very real question whether the American people will vote to keep in place a president and give another four years to a president who has presided over a pandemic of no fault of his own, but he is the guy in charge. He's the guy sitting in the white house. He was the guy coordinating the response from the beginning. Even if that response may have been a non-response in the early stages, this is a guy who is the, the father of a country at a moment when it's really, really sick and that we're seeing unseen levels of unemployment and death um, 
is this is this this is the this is the moment that the Gallup question is the country on the right track or wrong track? This is the moment that question was designed for, and that may end up being enough to put Joe Biden in the White House as president. The president, looking at this from a political standpoint, uh, seems at this moment to be. And I'm I'm trying to use a nonpartisan term here. Seems to be in a dither, and what I mean by that is that he bounces from thing to thing to thing to thing. He puts out a hundred retweets uh, over the weekend on subjects not even related to uh, what should be important to the government or or to uh, the people, and, and we just see this bouncing erratic behavior, and I'm trying to do this neutrally, what does the country, what does the country feel about that? What do Republicans feel about that? <laughs> well, Tom, I, I admire your uh, quest for objectivity here. Um, but objectively, the president is all over the place. That, there, that, is, that is not a statement of judgment. It's a statement of fact that he is all over the place with his tweets, his retweets, what he's interested in. I mean, he did a photo op with the, the Joint Chiefs on Saturday evening in the cabinet room that lasted about a minute, and none of them was wearing a mask. That, that Usually when the president meets with the Joint Chiefs, it's in the Situation Room, there is not a pool spray. That, that He meets with these individuals who run the nation's most important institution, its national security arm, um, and he meets with them behind closed doors, and there's not a photo op for it. It's a it's an opportunity to really assess the nation's security. And he met with them a little bit, called the cameras in, met with them a little more. We're told um, that this just isn't normal. I mean, he spent Melania's um, the first lady Melania Trump's birthday getting in a media tweet flame war um, a couple weeks ago. He spent Mother's Day last night also engaged in this. White House aides tell me that, yeah, the president um, can do, can walk and chew gum and run and juggle chainsaws all at the same time. And there is truth to that. The presidency is not a one, one event, discrete event. Um, but it does, it does question the efficiency of his, um, his messaging. Republicans I talk to, especially um, in leadership on the Hill, would much prefer the president stay focused on one one message a day. They also know that they've been they've been counseling this now for three years, and it's not going to happen. And the reality is, they have to deal with okay. There's this this bucket of the president's message. There's that bucket of the president's message, um, and recognize that their own base for Republican lawmakers. They're taking their cues from what the president's tweeting about. Um, and as much as, you know, Mitt Romney wants to be talking about this provision of the tax code, there are a lot of folks back in Utah for him who notice that that the president is tweeting about uh, how Meet the Press edited a question for the attorney general. And that is the most important issue of the day for them is to figure out how uh, the president is going to hold sleepy-eyed Chuck Todd, um, as the tweet read um, this weekend, how how they're going to hold Chuck accountable for an edit on Meet the Press. It's just, it, it's they're they're not in charge of their own um, their own field right now. That they are they're they're at the mercy of the president's tweets. The president is a master of Twitter, and we're all just living in that world. So before we leave the uh, administration and move to Congress, uh, before we leave the executive branch, you did a story recently for Time about the impact of all of this on towns and and communities, uh, not just states but communities. How does that? mesh with the White House's messaging and what they're trying to get across. Is there a disconnect or did, do 
small towns across the country look to the president to save them? You know, this is a really, um, it's, it's going to be a complicated situation for the White House to navigate. And I appreciate you flagging this. Um, I grew up in a town of 5,000 people in Northeast Ohio outside of Youngstown. And it's, it, that place is going to be making some really difficult decisions about what, what it's able to do. I mean, tax revenue has dried up all over this country. State and local governments don't have the money to pay um, their police officers to pay in some places their garbage collectors. They, a lot of these places, um, I talked to a mayor out in Colorado who, as the, as mayor, runs five utilities, including high speed internet. That there is just so much that everyday everyday folks in this country rely on government to, to um, provide. I mean, it's water, sewer electric, fire, police, roads, um, I mean, just... The basics of life. You know, it is the nuts and bolts. It's not sexy. No one gets, no one wakes up in the morning jazzed to say, oh goodness, I'm going to go draw tax assessment maps. Um, It's the stuff that if, if, if private industry could turn a profit on it, and get people excited about it, this would all be privatized, but it's not. These are common and shared uh, needs that government provides for us. It's it's the common good. And they're out of money. They're, a lot of these places, I mean, Florida, I mean, huge, I think it's 11% of the Florida budget relies on tourism. Guess what? Disney's not open. Um, you take a look at places like uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, Fifty percent of its budget is on sales tax. You know, it's Colorado State isn't in, in 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 session. You're just not getting the money on this. Athens, Ohio, where you're sitting and where I went to college, so much of that economy is rooted on the student. Just in my case, just stupid spending with a debit card, just going up to Court Street and saying, "Hey, that's something I want. I'm going to buy it." It is the so you're looking at really tough choices that state and local officials are ha- having to make about, okay, do we fix that pothole? Do we keep this person on staff? Do we have to furlough this police officer? And this is what I don't think the White House has quite realized. A lot of these positions are your neighbors. That it's one thing in abstract to have, okay, the Congressional Budget Office has to not do this report on tuna fat and the environment. It's another when your neighbor who is the meter maid, well, maybe the meter maid's not the right example, but your neighbor who is a teacher has to either take a pay cut or is furloughed or, hey, that classroom's not reopening next year. These are deeply intense personal um, relationships. And a lot of these, a lot of these positions are members of unions and unions are incredibly powerful politically when it comes to the ballot box. And as we are trying to figure out what we do to help these, these budgets that are all of, all of the sudden who had been very healthy leading to this have been responsible, they suddenly have all of the income dry up. I mean, I was watching, as, as we're sitting here at home during this time of self-isolation. I've been spending a lot of time watching the governor's press conferences. Um, thank you, C-SPAN. It is a national treasure. Um, but you, you watch, like, for instance, the in Vermont, the governor begins the press conference with an update from the state financial officer. How much money do we have and how many days of spending do we have until we're broke? In all but two states in this country, you can't do but state budgets in the red. You have to balance the budget. It is it is just a fact of life, and you have to get you have to keep your books in the black. You don't have the luxury of deficit spending the way Washington does, and you know these but these governors, these county executives, um, county trustees, whatever we call them in your specific states, they've got to keep their their books in the black, and that is going to lead for, to some really difficult decisions. And it's going to hurt people who have the jobs that are going to be cut. And it's going to hurt you and I 
who rely on those government workers to just get, you know, keep the water running. That I mean, there, there's just so much downstream question about what what happens next. And who gets blamed for that? Is it the federal government and the president, or does the blame fall on the governors from the average person out there who may not see the nuances of power? Where do they go with their ire and their anger? Well, judging from some of the messaging we're seeing from the White House and the president's Republican allies, they want you to blame China. They want to say that this is a mess entirely created by China and, you know, blame China, put tariffs on China, um, start a trade war with China, keep the trade war going with China, that this is all China's fault. When really uh, you take a look around and there's, there's a lot of blame to go around at all levels of government for how you can argue this, um, argue responsibility here. And I'm not endorsing any one of these as the actual reason, but you can see how you could very easily blame, hey, your town didn't put enough money away. Hey, your county didn't put enough money away. Hey, your state decided to fund this airplane purchase for that university. Hey, your regional EPA administrator spent money on this. Hey, the White House disbanded its task force on pandemics. Hey, Congress gave a trillion dollar tax cut to the wealthy and didn't do anything for Main Street. That there's just so much screaming that is legitimately, um, that you can find legitimate grounds to wear yourself out shouting at the rooftops. Um, but the reality is no one was ready for this. I mean, you t- I, I did some, con- I had some conversations with, uh, what is it, the National Association of State Budget Officers, um, which is actually a thing, NASBO. Um, and, you know, the states were the healthiest they have been in decades in terms of rainy day funds, but it's like 8% of their budget they had tucked away. And no one no one had prepared for a wholesale end to tax revenue. Um, that is just, this is, this is a once-a-century um, pandemic, and it, it hit... At, while the economy was going well, I mean, ha- can you imagine this happening in 2008 or 2009 during the Wall Street meltdown? I mean, we would—it it would have been caveman situation here. We had a healthy economy, and we should have a healthy economy when we get through this in in in, in due measure. But you know, this—if if you're going to have this, you know, nuclear incident go off in both your health sector and your economic sector. This might have been the best time for it to have happened. Um, that you know, we, we at least were on somewhat. We were on really solid footing, um, just from a an amoral economic art moment, where it's just you take morality out of this entirely and human judgment. The new man, I mean, like objectively, you know, the economy was going pretty well, um, and we had a little bit of padding in there. I mean, my my economist friends were arguing to me that, you know, we were due for a course correction in terms of the markets, that Wall Street was artificially inflated, that we we, we were due for a reckoning. Um, We didn't know it was going to be this, um, but Wall Street was confident. We had some, we we had a pretty strong economy. Unemployment was really um, at a a moment where the president could run on the economy and win re-election. And then this thing just came out of left field um, and really derailed a lot of um, a lot of this. Um, my economist friends tell me that this will there will be a rebound. It won't take as long as the Great Recession of 08-09. but it's going to take time, and it's not going to be easy. And people are going to suffer. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. 
Scripps provides leadership and communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So let's move uh, down Pennsylvania Avenue to to Congress in the Capitol. Um, we've seen in a place that is probably the most partisan place on earth, we've at least seen the parties coming together to pass the initial stimulus packages. Uh, what now? As election approaches, um, uh, will we see more partisanship and will that then come to gridlock and the American public go, go what the hell? Or, or where are we with this? That is the big question, and I, I don't. I honestly don't know. I, there are signs that we're going to be digging in. Um, that we're just going to all go to our corners and take our ball and go home, and just issue wish lists of partisan demands. There are signs that behind the scenes that there is some legitimate cooperation um, and sincere. I would point going back to the Senate Health Committee. Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray um, are just these nerds who understand health <laughs> policy. I, and I, I love them for this. I mean, like Lamar Alexander, secretary of education under uh, the first president Bush, like understands what needs to happen. Patty Murray, former preschool teacher who, who just, she, she's just a nerd's nerd and we love her for it. Like ran, like ran for her first office wearing tennis shoes because like, that was her thing that she was, if she's going to run, she's going to run. Um, and then behind the scenes, those two respect each other. They understand what needs to happen. They understand this is, this is a moment where just like you, you have a moment to, you know, respond to history and to make history. And they're just trying to figure out, okay, what can work here? Like, you know, we can fight over Obamacare another time right now. We've got, we're sending, I mean, you think about it, help is health, education, labor, and pensions. I mean, at if any point, that like this is the committee where actually the rubber meets the road. Like you've got people trying to figure out, is it safe to open schools? Do we have enough testing? Okay, your retirement account just tanked um, because you were invested in the stock market because that was supposed to be safe. Um and, you know, is it safe to go to work? I mean, is, are our workplaces, is the labor force being protected? That you really just have these two individuals who know what's up and know their material cold. And they're just trying to figure out how to, that works. But above them, you have McConnell, Leader McConnell and Leader Schumer, um, who just, they, they're, they're not simpatico, to put it, to no. put it as politely no. as possible. These are not individuals who enjoy each other's company, and they're 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 not really trying to figure out how to make this work. I mean, McConnell is in cycle this this year. Um, he's on the ballot. I mean, he's not going to lack for any money for his reelect, but you know, he's he does have to worry about his reelect. And the thing that he's trying to navigate is he's got it's not a great map for Republicans this year, but you've got the president at the top of the ballot. But McConnell comes from Kentucky, one of the three worst states hit in terms of long-term fiscal health. Yet its pension system is garbage. I mean, it, they need a bailout from uh, Washington to, to get itself solvent. I mean, you take a look at Illinois, states like Illinois, Kentucky, New Jersey, Connecticut, that there are some long-term structural problems here with their state budgets, and they need to figure out, they need some help from Washington to get that right. And it's it's... It's, McConnell is telling his caucus, you know what, let the state let the states declare bankruptcy 
Um, what does that do for pensioners outside of Lexington? That they're, you know, as much as ideology is playing in this, more than anything is self-preservation, is to figure out how you get power and how you hold on to power. And it's you're going to be watching a lot of um, contortion, uh, contortionists in Washington try to figure out how you bend your ideology to fit your immediate political needs to tell the voters that you deserve another term, uh, another term in office, another turn at the wheel um, in order to exercise power to advance that ideology. That you're just watching this cycle of, um, it's like watching Gumby here play politics. <laughs> and it's it's phenomenal to watch. And, <laughs> I, I, I can imagine. But before we leave uh, the the federal government, I, I, I certainly want to touch the third branch that we haven't talked about, and that's the uh, judicial branch. And uh, the most uh, the, the most notable thing in the news in the last week or so has been uh, the Justice Department under William Barr saying that they want to dismiss the the case of Michael Flynn. Now, of course, this, because Flynn already has pled guilty to two charges, and there is a motion to withdraw that plea, this comes in on top of that and goes to the federal judge who has to decide whether to have a hearing, what kind of hearing, and what to do with this. Uh, it's not a done deal, but it seems to the average American that while we're watching the COVID-19 ball, other things are happening. Are they distractions or is it a time to get things done under the radar? I'm going to be very careful here because there's a, if there, there is a large section of this country that wouldn't care about Michael Flynn even with even when we were all running marathons and we're perfectly healthy, right? There are just there are people who they don't care. Just they don't care, and you can make a very legitimate argument that they shouldn't. Um, I'm not one of them, but <laughs> there, there is a way to make that argument. I, I think you're, you're watching COVID nineteen and the coronavirus have consumed so much oxygen at the moment, and. It, it's an emotional reaction as much as it is an intellectual one. There, at the same time, the president is and his his allies are moving forward um, to change um, Mr. Flynn's future um, in a way that's not altogether unpredictable. The question, the the, the distinction here is that the president ha- now has COVID nineteen and the coronavirus as the distraction instead of some errant tweet or a fight with right. a celebrity or Kim Kardashian West in the Oval Office advising on judicial um, policy or dropping the mother of all bombs abroad or picking up or trying to buy Greenland. Like there's always a distraction with this president. He's very good at it. It is, it is a, a, an arrow in his quiver that he's always had. And it's going to be better than anyone else's in Washington. The moment we're in right now is that we all care about the distraction because it is so deeply personal to us. Whether a, a, a former national security advisor um, and his guilty plea are allowed to stand is almost an indulgence in the abstract right now. It, it speaks to who we are as a country and whether we care about the rule of law and whether we um hold to account people who admit to lying to not just the vice president, but also the FBI and admit to crime, which is a crime and rightfully so, and whether we hold them to account or not, um, or we, we indulge in this theory that the justice department was engaged in a massive, uh, sting operation at the behest of president Obama to root out the new incoming administrations. Um, senior officials like all of that is is something we can talk about in a in a theory seminar but it's not going to kill you the way coronavirus is and that is that is why the potency of coronavirus is just so 
useful for this president to keep our, our eye on a different ball. Um, at the same time, I'd, I'd also flag that, you, that while, while this is going on, it, the Senate has been back now for a week, and they're not here debating necessarily what, how the best legislative response here is. They're here confirming presidential nominees to the judiciary and that the president is restacking um, the, the benches um, with folks who are, um, who are, whose minds meld with his philosophy on just judges. And Mitch, that probably more than anything will be Mitch McConnell's legacy is that, you know, a generation of um, rulings and judges um, are going to be, have the imprint of president Trump and leader McConnell. And that, that has some really far reaching um, implications for issues like reproductive rights, labor law, um, LGBT rights. Uh, it, it really does just broadly the, the blanket of um, privacy that you, you're really seeing um, come in under the radar as we're all watching um, our friends and neighbors uh, get sick and die. So let's move now to politics and like we haven't been talking about politics, but I mean, the presidential elections were in an unprecedented time. We have no idea what a campaign is going to look like. You are a veteran of, I don't, I can't remember, Phil, how many campaigns, but I know too many that you would like to remember or not remember. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it, talk about what we're going to see. Do you have any idea what this campaign is going to look like? And from a journalist's point of view, how did the hell do you cover this? You know, it is, we're reinventing um, the campaign as, as we're going through. And I think there's an opportunity here to question the value of what we had used as benchmarks. That do crowd sizes matter at rallies? I remember getting in a fight during the 08 campaign with the Obama team that they were just so impressed with themselves that they drew, and I'm going to get the number wrong here, so don't hold me to this, but um, it was like 80,000 people in Oregon that no one had ever drawn that many people to an, an event. I remember it was specifically it was Oregon, but the number escapes me. I think it was 80,000. Um, and that they just wanted you to report there were 80,000 people here. And then the McCain campaign countered, well, we got X thousand here, and then we got X thousand here. And it just became, okay, you're able to turn people out, but that doesn't translate to anything. And then fast forward to 2012, we were fighting about how many doors were knocked in the final weekend in Iowa and how many people were knocking, how many impressions on social media we had and how much data did we have. We had 6,000 pieces of data about every voter in Michigan. And then, and then we ended up with the Clinton campaign, how many social media impressions and how many, and then Trump was like, how many red hats did we sell? All of the metrics by which we judge normal campaigns might be wrong. And this might be the election where we say, you know what, yard signs don't vote. And that really, that everything we've been used to this point as a proxy for the health of a campaign doesn't matter. That maybe voting is an intensely personal event, that there is no stand-in to predict these behaviors. Maybe our obsession with polling has been wrong. Um, for the record, I the polls did get 2016, right? We just a lot of a lot of my colleagues over simplified them and took them as predictive and not uh, that you know if you, if if something is if there's a four point margin of error and it's forty seven forty eight you're tied like let's just learn how to do math people but that's a whole other treatise for another time um, but I, I think that we're trying to figure out what matters to people and we're actually having to talk to voters more and that's. That is what I've been missing uh, from this campaign, that up until um, South Carolina, I was out on the road um, a good deal. I, I, I went straight from Iowa to New Hampshire and was just talking to people at events and just having conversations about what they were thinking. And there was a lot, you get a lot from that. Um, 
you get a sense that even when you're going to a Mayor Pete event, um, they, they were still uh, lingering. They were there to support Mayor Pete, but they had a respect for Joe Biden. So you could see like, okay, maybe the Biden campaign in Philadelphia is not insane when they think, okay, people are going to come home to Uncle Joe. Um, you, you could get that. You don't have that now. And I, I do worry that we are using social media as a stand-in for what voter sentiment actually is. Um, and that we're taking the two or three percent of people who are on Twitter and using that as a proxy. So I think we're we're trying we're going to have to recalibrate that. And then secondly, I mean, you're taking a look at these campaigns that have been planning on spending literally a billion dollars on putting offices in places like Athens. I remember going door knocking in sixteen at the uh, local Democratic office uh, that the Hillary campaign had there on uh, East State Street, um, that they they were doing everything they could to build out local, on-the-ground, physical offices to to get out the vote and knock on doors. Do we do that? Do people open the doors for their when someone knocks on them anymore? Like, if a stranger shows up to your door and wants wants to tell you how wonderful Joe Biden is, or Donald Trump is, do you open that door? Like, they're, 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 this, this is the new reality, that it might end up being all a remote election. I mean, what do polling places look like? Are polling places safe? Is it worth risking your life to vote for or against the president's re-election? And that is a very real and legitimate concern. Or do we upend this and we start doing like six states already do and do entirely vote by mail? Do we gasp, do something completely revolutionary and let people vote online? Like, and how do we secure the in- integrity of the vote? And do we let these potential um, doors open for voter fraud as rare as it is in reality? But then if someone wins the election through this newfangled technology of the postal service, is that considered legitimate and do we have faith in our government if this happens and there are just these all all of these unknowns that we are just recreating and going down this rabbit hole of philosophy and ethics and legitimacy and political theory and i mean it is a grad student's dream to be able to be living in this moment and trying to sort through this new reality and that i mean do do we have do we have faith in our va- our basic cornerstones of democracy um, at this moment when we're recreating uh, the shape of that democracy in real time while facing a global pandemic that threatens to kill all of us? One last question, and that is the importance of Joe Biden's uh, running mate. And he said that he wants to announce that early. I'm sure there's vetting going on. That's a little different than in the past. And how important do you think that is, if at all? It's important for folks like you and me, that we're trying to read the tea leaves. It is the most consequential decision Joe Biden will make as the presumptive nominee of his party. It is signaling to all of us in his first official act as the Democratic he is the Democratic establishment at this point as the presumptive nominee and what he values. It is not important if you're an out-of-work sanitation worker in Reno, Nevada, who's trying to decide whether you give the president another term or not, that the tea leaves don't matter if you don't have a job. The virtue signaling for a teacher in Milwaukee doesn't matter if you're trying to figure out how you teach the next 180-day school year on really janky dial-up internet connection. None of this matters to rank-and-file voters. It matters to the political class. That said, we've seen vice presidential picks go well, and we've seen them go poorly. I mean, I don't think we're going to have an Eagleton situation where you have a running mate for 18 days because the vetting was so poor. Um, But I also don't think we're going to have a Sarah Palin situation where you're going to have someone overshadow the top of the ticket. That Joe Biden is many things. He he is not one for showy 
stunts. The team that Biden has selecting the running mate or vetting the running mate or doing the due diligence on the running mate. Um, th- these are serious folks. Ron Klain was his chief of staff. Um, you've got Barack Obama's Homeland Security Advisor uh, doing some of the security risks. Um, you've got Chris Dodd, who, who is a, a, a Senate chairman and a Biden buddy. You've got some pretty sober people doing this, and they're, they know they know the stakes here. I mean, Joe Biden um, is, in effect, um, not just picking his running mate, but he's signaling what the future of the party is going to look like. And you, you, can, you can vote for him or against him based on his own merits. But Joe Biden is 77 years old. There is a, there is a possibility he only runs uh, once that he, he says he's going to be a one-term president. And this is, in effect, um, him picking the, the Democrat in the White House for the next 12 years. Um, and no matter what, you should count on the president, um, take President Trump taking the moment to bring a new face of the Democratic Party on stage and do everything he can uh, in his power to smear this person um, and try to extrapolate a new identity for the Democratic Party through this person, no matter who he or she um, is at this point. Phil, thank you. As always, you are a voice of reason uh, coming from Washington. All of us out here in the hinterlands that just feel like screaming sometimes and venting. Whenever I talk to you, there's always a sense of calm. Uh, it, may, it may not be optimistic, but a sense of calm. And I appreciate that. Of course, Tom. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Times Washington correspondent Phil Elliott about the latest developments in Washington surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. 